Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very excited to be joined today by Kathleen Kelly Janis, the author of Social Startup Success. Kathleen, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Steve. I was pleased to get contacted ahead of time to be able to uh, get a chance to look at your book. It is so fascinating. Um, I, I've got a number of questions about everything you're putting forward there, but let me just start by asking you to just um, introduce yourself a little bit about um, your history before the book, and then let's tell us about why you decided to write this. Absolutely. Well, this book was really inspired by my upbringing. I was raised in a small town in Napa, California, where my family was very involved in nonprofits uh, as volunteers and board members. And so we spent a lot of our weekends volunteering at soup kitchens and uh, low-income worker clinics. Um, and, our, and our volunteer efforts didn't end there. My parents uh, talked around the dinner table about nonprofits that were struggling, that were really having a hard time getting the money they needed in the door to sustain their organization so that they could provide those social services to beneficiaries. And so from a very young age, I was really keenly aware that nonprofits have a hard time keeping their organizations afloat and that it's our duty and our obligation to do everything we can to make sure that they can not only survive, but thrive so that they can provide these important social services in our communities. And so when I graduated from law school and started my own small nonprofit in San Francisco, I learned this lesson the hard way. We were looking to engage our peers in philanthropic causes to support gender equality issues. And so we started an organization, Spark, uh, with a few other women and myself. And we were doubling our revenue every few months in the beginning. We were really taking off as an organization. We were seeing the impact of our work. And it was just when we hit our stride that we hit a wall. We couldn't get the capital that we needed in the door to grow uh, nationwide and to expand our impact that we knew we were having as, a, as an organization. So I became really curious as around that time I was watching other organizations around me like Kiva and Donors Choose and organizations like Teach for America that were scaling and, and growing their impact and getting the capital that they needed. And so I became really curious, well, what are these organizations doing that we weren't doing at Spark? And how did they get over that revenue hump? Um, and I learned in this research that I did around that time at Stanford that, in fact, a lot of organizations hit this hump, that $500,000 in revenue, uh, there's a wall, and two-thirds of nonprofits in the United States are $500,000 in revenue and below. And many of them are small community-based organizations and should stay small organizations, but many of them want to scale. And so Social Startup Success is a book about the organizations that do scale. It's the stories of organizations that have been successful and, uh, and talks about how they've done that based on this five-year research process project that I've, I've done. Um, interviewing hundreds of social entrepreneurs along the way. 
So you come up with some pretty specific conclusions and recommendations, uh, and I kind of want to, since the book is nicely outlined, maybe just proceed with some questions along um, the the themes that you ordered in the book. Because one of the first things that that stopped me dead is you're talking about how do other charities do this? How do they get past that hump and whatnot? And um, one of them is is in testing ideas, but really implementing some concepts of design thinking in that process, which I've been really intrigued by with other organizations, and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how you tripped into that sort of language to talk about what it means to use that in the beginning of a process in order to be able to move forward later. Yeah, so in the Silicon Valley, I think we've become um, completely immersed in this idea of human-centered design, which um, has become very popular in business sectors. And for those of you who aren't familiar with human-centered design, it's really this strategy that businesses uh, can use that uh, came out of the D school at, at Stanford and IDEO, uh, a big company in Silicon Valley that um, looks at low cost prototyping and engaging your end users as a way to figure out the best possible product in a low cost way uh, before you actually scale. And so when I started doing my research, I realized that a lot of nonprofits are doing this formally and informally using these design thinking principles and these low cost methods of testing because let's be honest <laughs> nonprofits can't expense can't afford expensive testing processes especially early on in their organizations um, to figure out what's working and what's not and that process is really critical because it's that innovative innovative culture that gets set into motion that forces nonprofits to constantly be thinking as they grow what is the most effective way to be solving this problem and falling in love with the problem as opposed to falling in love with the solution so let me give you an example so Beth Schmidt the founder of wishbone was a teacher in Los Angeles in a low-income school and she realized that her students weren't getting the opportunities that they needed to follow their passions in life. And she assigned this paper and uh, asking them to say, you know, what is your passion? And she was blown away and moved to tears by these papers and thought, what if I just shared these stories with my friends and family to see if they might fund these students to be able to actually follow their dreams? And so she photocopied the letters, this was very low tech, um, mailed them with a stamp to her friends and family and asked them for money to support some summer experiences for her students. And she raised several thousand dollars and was able to put these students through camps, give them internships, provide them training in the arts. And she saw the impact that these experiences had on these students' long-term trajectory. And so she thought, okay, this is really something here and ended up building a whole crowdfunding model and is now a multi-million dollar organization with a full website and tech platform where students can fundraise themselves to support the program where um, the they 
work closely with their teachers to figure out how to follow their passions. And so now it's a very robust program, but in the very early days, um, as you can see from that story, it really wasn't a fancy process. It was about figuring out what's gonna work here and how can we best serve these students. And so I think that's what organizations um, often miss is giving themselves that space to test uh, to figure out what is really going to solve the problem that they're seeking to solve. I think you've really identified something with the um, sort of inherent barrier with many charities thinking about um, testing phases, though, in terms of cost, because we don't go out and get um, initial rounds of VC funding to, you know, uh, um, begin charitable work very often anyway. I mean, it's not that it couldn't happen with the social sector, but most often uh, we're sort of building the airplane as we're flying it and uh, have this real passion of we, we just got to keep moving forward. We can't stop and say, well, this actually isn't getting to the problem we thought we were getting to. This is doing something else. And we get trapped often, I think, in measuring the um, outputs of what we're doing rather than the outcomes that we thought we were trying to tackle to get to the problem. And there, I think, is is the the challenge in this first phase that that I, as I see it, when and as I was reading your uh, book about this part, to say, if you get so focused on the outcomes you have created, or the outputs you've created, rather, and, and aren't able to back up and really fall in love with that problem as you defined it uh, because that was just the easiest way to get started. It's not necessarily the best way to get started, but it was an easier way to get started. We, we miss an opportunity to do something differently later, but boy, it seems like stopping and maybe trying something differently or abandoning something just doesn't happen very often in those early stages of a startup nonprofit, at least so far today. Absolutely. I, I, that's exactly right. Organizations often are off to the races with their ideas because they they need to get funded in order to get started and pay themselves and, and do really important work. So it's kind of this chicken egg problem. But what I found in my research is that once you put a stake in the ground and say, here's what I'm doing, it's really hard to claw back and change that model once you've gone out to funders and made a lot of promises. And so the organizations that do take that time up front to come to, come to what is a really effective long-term solution, both A, are able to go to funders with some really serious, which helps get them funded, so it's really effective in the long-term, but B, sets into culture this, this culture, as I, the, sets into motion this culture of innovation, as I said before, mm -hmm. that helps organizations become more comfortable with failure and more comfortable with discarding programs that maybe aren't as effective as they could be. I think what's really hard in this sector is it's all good work. It's all, you know, it's all, you know, if you have beneficiaries that are being served, it's hard to let go of those programs because you know those people who are benefiting often from, um, from the programs. Um, but I think the question is in a, in a, sector that is so starved for resources, we need to be as efficient as possible with our resources so that we can solve these really hard problems in the most effective way that we can. So I sort of said I would look chronologically through how you've tackled these things in the book, but I want to jump ahead a little bit to some of the conversation you have about theories of change, um, logic models as the real um, heart of 
what you're trying to get done when you do the testing phase so that that is sort of in the forefront rather than saying um, we want to provide um, after school activities for this group of youth. You want to say we want these young people to be more successful in their eventual chosen careers and therefore we're going to start with this intervention and see how that impacts them later on. And again, I don't know that every charity starts out with the long-term, here's the outcome that we're really trying to get to um, in the conversation with potential funders so that when they're funding that testing phase, they're keeping that eye on, you know, we think this is an intervention towards that. Maybe it's not the best one, but we think it might be. So we got to go try it and then be able to say, yes, it supports that outcome and we continue to move forward or no, perhaps, this other tweak will do better. So uh, am, am I portraying that correctly where you're um, talking a little bit about testing earlier in the book, but you get into that theory of change conversation pretty quickly thereafter that that's got to be engaged in that testing part? Absolutely. The th theory of change is critical to the measuring process and the, the, the process of understanding whether your organization is having impact. Uh, it's It's a very jargony way of saying just this is my solution to the problem and I think a lot of organizations get tripped up by the theory of change process because it can feel very complicated and if you look at organizations theories of change they are often very complicated because these problems are very complicated that we're trying to solve and there's a lot of factors that can go into them. But, but the benefit of doing a theory of change process um, where you engage your board, you engage your staff and really stepping back and trying to understand what is my intervention and what are the indicators along the way to show whether I am making progress towards the ultimate goal of solving a certain problem. That the earlier you can do that, the better that you're going to be able to measure your impact because you're going to be able to to say, okay, what are those key indicators of my success? Um, and that's going to be your impact measurement. So I'll give you an example: an organization called Braven, uh, which serves low-income college students who don't have the benefit of family networks or parents helping them with their resumes. Um, were really underserved. And so they they were looking at how they could use mentors and training um, and resume building and that kind of thing to help get these students more prepared for the job market once they graduated. So when they started their program, they had a class full of freshmen. They wouldn't know for four years <laughs> whether they were actually having an impact on those freshmen's ultimate job trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so they had to figure out using their theory of change, okay, well, what are the key indicators that we can identify that are going to show whether we're having progress towards making that ultimate goal of getting these kids a job? So for example, they measured these students' class attendance to try and understand whether the students were on track to actually graduating. They measured the students' uh, mentors' comments to see whether those mentors would actually recommend them for a job uh, as, a, as a way to show whether these students would actually get a job after school, whether or after they graduated. Um, so looking at, you know, impact measurement, it doesn't have to be 
a thousand different indicators. And I think that's where organizations get really overwhelmed. 75% of organizations say that they collect data, but only 6% say they think that they use that data well. So it's mm -hmm. a big challenge in the sector. People, nonprofit leaders are not necessarily data scientists. They come to these issues because they really care about making a difference um, and, and solving these problems. And that's often a very different skill set from measuring their impact towards solving the problems. And so figuring out how to break it down into bite-sized chunks so that it's really clear and easy and not focused on 100 indicators, but focused on the ones that really matter. Or at least the ones that are accessible and useful to you at the time, because you know, in in an ideal world, of course, you would have a, a thirty year longitudinal double blind study, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you're suggesting in the book anyway that um, you get people to be a little bit more nimble in their thinking about what other data is out there that supports the um, those longer term outcomes that I can use. So in the example you just gave, um, you, you, class attendance as an early indicator is probably something that somebody else has studied uh, and they can pull together and say these folks studied whether or not class attendance as an early indicator is useful towards the idea. So we're going to grab that data point and look at it, not we've created independent research that verifies that that is true. So having that nonprofit be a little bit more flexible in a combination of collecting and analyzing their own data against other stuff that's already been studied out there can help leapfrog that problem a little bit towards that longer term outcome. Absolutely. And nonprofit organizations, especially very small ones, have to be small and nimble and scrappy. Yeah. And so this is a great way, one great way to do it. In the, in the book, I talk about um, other strategies that nonprofit leaders can use to try and harness other people's research to benefit their own work. I think it's a really important point. It just uh, thinking about that question of you know the social startup success to get to scale. That if we're starting this conversation with a smaller organization, that sub half million dollar kind of thing, to help them start thinking about these pieces now, I think addresses a couple of problems that I run into with some clients. You know, one of this is this question of of mission creep. Um, that if you um, start taking on a different project area or a different program, people may feel like, well, you're just chasing money, you're not actually following your own mission. And if the conversation is really, well, no, we're following this outcome. And we we have learned something about a different tactic, a new way, a different thing that might have a better impact on that outcome. That's not changing our mission. That is learning, what did you call it in the book? Learning from failure, uh, something along those mm -hmm. lines. Yeah, and accepting accepting failure. I mean, I think too many organizations use impact measurement to prove what they're doing is working. And so right. they start from the starting point that it you know, let's let's figure out numbers that are going to make our organization look good as opposed to using it to improve what they're doing. So great example from the research I did was an organization called One Degree in San Francisco, a Yelp-like platform for social services um, that Ray Faustino, a Filipino immigrant, founded because he watched his parents struggle with getting good social services. So he started this website and he hired a chief technology officer, got an Echoing Green Fellowship and was off to the races. And very early on in the, the 
the development process, they were able to show that they had 40,000 visitors to the site. So this made him feel really good. We've got lots of traction here. We got lots of people coming to the site to check it out. But if they were really honest with themselves, they had no idea what people were doing once they got to the site. <laughs> they had no idea whether people were actually getting social services as a result of the site. Um, and so let alone whether those social services were making a difference in people's lives. So they had to retweak the user experience to move past those vanity metrics really to figure out more meaningful paths to impact. So they created a my plan where someone would have to sign in to use the site where they could trace which services they were looking at, whether they were actually getting services and ultimately, you know, be able to track how people were using those services. So those are really important ways to think about impact measurement is not just accepting the numbers at, that look good and putting them in your annual report and calling it a day, but being honest with yourself about what's working and what's not and constantly testing the counterfactual to try and see, would this person have succeeded but for our intervention? Is there causation or is it just correlation? Right, which again sounds sort of expensive, and uh, that that growing charity, the one that isn't at scale yet, may think I I can't afford to put that kind of time and energy into evaluating that. And I, you've got some some thoughts to that in the book as people are getting to scale, but that it's a necessary component to to kind of break through uh, and get there. And I'm intrigued to totally. hear your argument about that because it does seem to me that. Um, there are a number of organizations that have some really good ideas that do stay smaller than they need to, and a number that seem to be doing pretty well, even without what I would see as necessarily compelling um, evaluative data or, or moving things forward on their theory. But you think after you, lots of conversations and flying all over to talk to a lot of people, that really is a component that's common with these folks that grow past, that, that get somewhere. Well, you have to determine whether your intervention is what's actually causing impact because otherwise what's it all for um, but you're right it doesn't have to be expensive I mean the or the example I gave earlier of Braven used a really creative strategy to uh, tap into a control group so they found a group of students college students that were not participating in their program for whatever reason they couldn't take the class or they didn't have the time to work with a mentor and they paid them $25 in Amazon gift cards to answer a survey every few months about mm. their career trajectory versus the career trajectory of the individuals who are participating in the program. So that's a really great way for them to see, okay, how much more likely are our students to graduate versus the students who do not participate in the program. Um, so there are really easy ways that you can do this that don't cost a lot of money that just check you on your thinking and allow you to look deeper at your impact um, and really, again, be honest with it. Well, you'd mentioned just a moment ago about, you know, this is how one can get to scale or how a, a growing nonprofit, a smaller startup can can get there. And I would hope that in a, a good world, we were really looking at those impacts, but I'm, I'm not always convinced that is the only thing that does lead to some organizations getting bigger. And I want to, if I, oh, if I may yeah. jump a little bit, 
Um, and I, I don't want to get cynical. I, I do want to just kind of have a, a, a check against um, some perceptions of what else is it that leads to some organizations being more successful than others. And I'm glad to see some documentation in your work about um, that there is some common themes here of organizations that can not only create impact, but talk about it. And we'll get into the compelling stories part in a minute. But I want to jump a little bit ahead on this leading collaboratively thing against the charismatic leader that just seems to be the one that can get into a room and talk to people that have money and they write checks and you're like, nobody's asking yes. about impact. Nobody's actually talking about yes. long-term outcomes here. They're just thrilled that this individual in their community seems to have a vision and they're writing a check. Yes. And that, that feels a little frustrating sometimes. Yes. We all know those people. <laughs> and it is very frustrating, especially for those of us who are working with really, really great leaders who are you know, who are doing very, very important work, who may have, um, you know, who may not have that level of charisma or that, you know, that network uh, that they can step into to raise all that money. Um, and yes, that is absolutely true that there are people in society that are going to be drawn to those leaders and we can't change that. But what I also found in my research is that there are organizations that don't have the benefit of this kind of new form of operating a nonprofit. I mean, I grew up in Napa where it's not, it wasn't a fancy town when I grew up there. It was mm -hmm. a farm farming town and our, our nonprofits were doing the work that they needed to do to serve those most vulnerable in our community. They didn't have access to design thinking labs at the Stanford <laughs> D school or, you know, let alone, you know, coaches that would help them go out and tell a fancy story and get a TED talk. I mean, these were really community-based leaders that were rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work. And what's frustrating to me is that there's organizations out there that are doing this great work that don't have access to this new language, this new form of running a nonprofit. And what social startup success does for those leaders is it gives them this language that they can use to go in and to talk to funders about their theory of change about their impact in a much more sophisticated way and to tell their story in a way that is going to intrigue those donors that are looking for, frankly, different ways of operating than your old nonprofit <laughs> might have, have done. So donors have changed. Um, donors are more engaged. Donors no longer want to just write a check they want to roll up their sleeves and get involved. And so nonprofits have to change too if they want to get the capital that they need to scale. And this book provides those stories that can help people get there. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you then while we're on the subject of leadership, I want to come back to the funding experimentation section too, but um, you're advocating that a, a collaborative leading um, effort is going to be more successful in getting to scale, you know, lacking that um, person that just has lots of connections and charisma and all the rest of it, or even with that person who has lots of connections and charisma. Um, but again, I think that especially in that more startup mentality where sometimes there are um, new nonprofits where the lead staff kind of feel like, well, this is mine. Um, you're asking them to think um, beyond 
uh, themselves in this capacity of leadership and really take a step back towards the the outcome being the leader, as it were, or something kind of more collaboratively phrased that way? It's so interesting that we live in a society where we revere leaders and we associate leaders almost with like this kind of celebrity heroism, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg is associated with the success of Facebook, Steve Jobs with Apple. Um, And the same is true in the nonprofit sector. When we think of Teach for America, we might think of Wendy Kopp, or when we think of microfinance, we might think of Mohammed Yunus. But the reality is when you dive down into these organizations, there are thousands of people that are part of these movements that help these organizations happen and make them grow. And that actually, if you want to have a successful organization, you have to engage your staff in meaningful ways and your board in meaningful ways in order to to have that level of success. So in the book, I talk about various tools that people can use, but the 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 short story is that you have to engage your senior leadership and the organizations that tend to engage senior leadership very early on in their scaling process do better because that allows the founder to step away and focus on the fundraising and strategic planning that helps them grow. You have to engage your staff in meaningful ways to make them feel a part of the mission. So flipping that traditional hierarchy on its head and giving staff control over their impact numbers and creating horizontal forms of feedback so that staff can feel like they're part of a team. And you have to engage your board. And too many nonprofit leaders are frustrated with their boards of directors as opposed to harnessing them and using them to their benefit and to their advantage. And I think it's time that we really demystify that for nonprofit leaders because it's frustrating on all sides. I'll give you one example in the of social entrepreneurs across the country. Uh, 66% of organizations said that they would really like to have their board involved in fundraising. Only 15% of organizations thought that their board was fundraising in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. This is a huge disconnect. If you want your board involved in fundraising, you need to set up the strategies and the processes so that they can support you in that way. You can't just expect that boards are going to step up and (laughs) show up with um, big questions. Um, And so I I think that's really exciting because there is an opportunity for organizations to do better at engaging their boards. And it's through this collective leadership at every single level with the organization that an organization can really sing. And, And that's really exciting. Yeah, we're already getting to the point of only having about 15 minutes left, and we haven't gotten to half of the good stuff. So I want to um, uh, talk a little bit about this funding experimentation challenge or or thought that, again, I think is a sticking point in that scaling question for those charities that are trying to break through uh, that um, I, I often run into. It's like, well, we just need another grant. 
um, you know, one one more or another of the same that we're doing. And uh, you're suggesting that there's, you know, other uh, many ways to kind of uh, break those eggs and and figure that out in encouraging people to sort of institutionalize that um, that funding experimentation in those early years, especially, but probably as you continue to grow. Yeah, so in the book, I talk about funding experimentation as testing out different strategies for both earned income as well as philanthropic income early on. And this is important because the research shows that organizations that scale to become really large tend to have one single source of funding. This is contrary to all of the discussion that we often hear in the nonprofit sector that you have to diversify your portfolio mm -hmm. as if it were like a stock <laughs> portfolio. Yeah. Um, but that's actually not what the research says. The research says that it's not about diversification. It's about figuring out the right forms of funding for your organization and figuring out how to grow that um, as you scale. And organizations, uh, for every organization, that's going to be different. There's no one-size-fits-all funding model. So the testing process early on is critical to figure out what that natural match is going to be. And so in the book, I, I talk about different ways that you can do that and how that leads organizations to come up with funding models that might they might not have expected. So for example, Hot Bread Kitchen is this amazing uh, cooperative in New York that helps train low-income women for jobs in the food industry. When they first started the organization, they thought, okay, we're going to become 100% sustainable on our earned income. They have mm -hmm. a cafe where they sell the bread that the women make in the training program. They developed a wholesale program where they were actually able to sell the bread to places like Whole Foods and JetBlue. And then they developed a small incubator where they were able to rent out some of their space to small business owners who could make food products and then sell them in the markets. So they had all these great sources of earned income. But they realized that they were selling themselves short by not focusing on trying to bring in philanthropic income too, because their program could be so much better if they were able to fuel it with some of this donor money. So for example, providing childcare was not necessarily something that was profitable to do, but it was the right thing to do to allow women to come to the program and not have to worry about who was going to take care of their kids. Mm -hmm. They extended the program longer than it might have been profitable because they wanted to make sure that the women were as trained as well as possible. So there's all these little things that they were able to do by accepting philanthropic income. And so ultimately their earned income supports 65% of their work. And then the other 35% comes from donations. And this is something that they would not have figured out if they hadn't been involved in this really rigorous testing process early on. Well, that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. And I, I think that rather than necessarily thinking of a social enterprise component as the unicorn that will save you or whatever, um, to to think about it as an attempt to go, well, what if we did a peer-based fundraising campaign? What would let, Let's see what that tells us about how audiences want to support 
the work that we did? What if we did do some additional philanthropic outreach outside of our home state? What would that look like? You know, there's all sorts of ways to think about what you're suggesting here, but to not get stuck with just one of them is going to save us and we will go do that. And and we know that ahead of time. I, I appreciate where you're coming from that this is a, well, everything that you're talking about here is this testing of ideas and being ready to abandon things that aren't as good in favor of making room for something else. Sure. And viewing that as part of the learning process, it's not a failure. It's getting you one step closer to figuring out what's going to actually work. And that's a positive thing. Um, and it's also not just about this idea of figuring out which bucket your money is going to come from. Is it going to be philanthropic? Is it going to be earned? But how are you going to raise that money? So in the book, I give all sorts of amazing strategies that I heard from these leaders about getting other people to raise money for you and how to develop a champions program or, you know, how to use your staff to develop a, an earned income strategy by um, having a brainstorming process around the testing. So those are some of the ideas that I think all organizations can benefit from. And actually, I have a, a free fundraising course that I have developed that uh, we can make available to your listeners um, with free with purchase of the book, um, which talks about all of these strategies and has an accompanying workbook that uh, organizations can use to test them out in their own settings. So again, just being mindful of time, I, I want to ask you a little bit about um, taking all of this information and talking to the rest of the world about it. You, you've kind of got this section here about um, a compelling story. And I, I think of everything that I've seen in your work, the, this is maybe something that is a little bit more mainstream in, in the conversation of those uh, mid-sized nonprofits, that they understand, I think, that they need to be um, better storytellers. I, I don't know that they necessarily have dashboards and data that they've been doing the storytelling from, um, but I'd love you to just talk a little bit more about how you see that as one of those breakthrough things towards a, um, growing to scale. Yeah, so of course everybody knows they need to tell a good story. You can't build a movement without telling a good story. <clears throat> but what I learned in my research is that I think we all have this tendency to listen to a great TED talk or mm -hmm. listen to a great political speech and say, oh my gosh, this person is just a natural. They're such good public speakers. I mean, we've all heard that phrase. That person is such a good public speaker, such a good orator. Um, the reality is being a good public speaker comes from a lot of practice and a lot of investment in time in, 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 coaching and practicing and developing pitches and testing them out. And so again, getting back to this theme of testing, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. And what the best organizations realize is that storytelling has to happen at every single level within the organization. So it's not not just the executive director who needs coaching on storytelling uh, so that they can go out and give a TED talk or give a keynote. It's staff members who might be at a cocktail party and you know have the opportunity to pitch to a potential donor or it's board members who need to be able to have that elevator pitch ready to go, need to be able to be brand ambassadors for the organization so that they can 
go out and tell the story when they have the opportunity. So it's really every level of the organization and building in that pitching practice. So as you talk about everybody being ready, when when you go back and look at some of the other things that you're seeing in the success pieces, um, does everybody need to kind of um, be incorporating the ideas of uh, that uh, iterative testing piece, that, that part about really keeping the eyes on the long-term outcomes of those ideas about we've got dashboards that tell us when we're getting places or how do you see what makes a compelling story is that different for different staff people or do they all need to have kind of a thematic thing to stick in consciousness well it's different for every staff person and it's different for every audience so i just did a a, a storytelling workshop with a board and staff that uh, i'm involved in and we uh, did this exercise where you picked out of a hat a person that you were supposed to impersonate, whether it was a donor or a potential partner organization or a beneficiary. And then the person on the other side of that exercise, we, we did role play and partners, was supposed to think about what that audience wanted to hear um, and what, what kind of they were coming to that conversation with and what you wanted to get out of it, what you want your pitch to be and, and make the pitch on the spot. So it was a great opportunity to try on different hats and realize that ultimately every single audience is gonna have a different pitch. And so you need to be prepared on your feet to understand critically first how to, how to pitch that person and what you're asking of them. Yeah, I, th I think it's a good identification that, as you said, different audiences are going to respond early to different things, but then to be able to bring them further into a conversation over time uh, is important. So that first pitch may just be, we want to stay in touch. You know, can can we get that email? Can we get you to follow us socially? However, that, that next step to engagement might be. Absolutely, absolutely. And then the other piece of it is just bringing your own personal story into it and figuring out what is your personal connection to the cause. In the book, I talk about the Marshall Gans public narrative about the story of you, the story of us, the story of now. It's a nice framework for understanding how to get people on board and that story of you is the first piece of it is really critical because you can't get anybody involved until you can convince them why you are personally involved and oftentimes people haven't really taken the time to think about why they might be so passionate about a certain cause or a certain organization and so it's a great exercise to um, work on with your st staff and your board to help them have the space to do that. So we are starting to run low on time and there was so much that we haven't had a chance to get to. Is there a specific, uh, you know, knowing the, the audience that we're trying to reach here, talking to people that are already in the nonprofit sector that are probably doing some of this work, uh, kind of admonition or piece of advice that you really want to make sure you get to that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? We'll read the book. Right. <laughs> that's that's the, the big takeaway because there's a lot more advice right. and strategies that I talk out about in the book and it's available online at your favorite uh, book re retailer or you can go to my website kathleenjanis.com. Um, but my biggest takeaway from all of this research is that we talked a little bit about charisma earlier on and you know, when I was doing this research, I kept waiting for someone to say, when I'd ask them, what does 
key to a successful nonprofit. I kept waiting for someone to say, well, it's just grit or charisma <laughs> or a brilliant idea or, you know, some sort of a, a trait, internal trait that, that allows organizations to succeed or fail. And nobody said that. And, you know, it's not to say that charisma doesn't matter or you have to have a good idea. Of course you do. But it's really these set of strategies that lay the foundation for success. And any organization, no matter how big or small, no matter how many resources they have, can focus on these best practices to lay the foundation for success and scale. And, you know, honestly, we didn't get into it, but that may mean just being a really good community-based organization with an annual budget of $250,000 a year and doing really good work and really impactful work at that level. So um, I think every organization can benefit from the book, and I'm really excited to share it with the world. Good. Well, I think just before we close, that's a really important recognition that there are going to be, when we look at the overall universe of charities, uh, you know, your your local um, PTA that raises some extra money for the school is never going to, well, shouldn't maybe ever be a, a $10 million a year organization. It, it has a finite mission and it can accomplish that with relatively little financial resources compared to these others. But if your problem, if that big um, thing that your um, theory of change is getting to is bigger than one school, one community, one thing. Scale is a real barrier, and and thinking of these ideas as a way to tackle that is very exciting. So thank you for bringing that to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it more. Well, I, I encourage everybody to take a look at your favorite bookseller for Social Startup Success by Kathleen Kelly Janis. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Steve. Thanks.